we can have built in our time the first human settlement on a new world. There's nothing in this that is fundamentally beyond our technology. All it takes is some focus and a little bit of moxie. We can do this. That's Robert Zubrin, president of the Mars Society, weighing in on the prospects for building cities on the red planet in a National Geographic TV series called Mars. That series blended a science fiction story about Mars exploration with commentary by real-life space pioneers, including Zubrin and SpaceX founder Elon Musk. Now, science fiction speculation about space travel is getting closer to science fact. In a newly published book titled The New World on Mars, Robert Zubrin speculates about the shape of things to come for Mars settlers, including the clothing they'll wear and the sports they'll play. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the intersection of science and fiction. Join me and my co-host, science fiction author Dominica Fetaplace, as we explore the new world on Mars with Robert Zubrin. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Robert Zubrin has been the world's longest-serving advocate for Mars exploration and settlement. He's a rocket scientist who ran his own space company for nearly a quarter century, and he's been president of the nonprofit Mars Society for roughly the same stretch of time. In the 1990s, Zubrin came up with an architecture for crewed missions to the Red Planet called Mars Direct, and he's been building on that Mars Direct architecture ever since. He laid out his vision for getting to Mars and setting up settlements in his best-known book, The Case for Mars, first published in 1996. Twenty-eight years later, SpaceX is developing a super-heavy-lift launch system called Starship that's designed to transport settlers to Mars a hundred people at a time. NASA and the Mars Society are running simulated Mars missions to study how future Red Planet crews will work together. And in his new book, The New World on Mars, Zubrin updates the case for Mars with his musings about what it would be like to live on Mars. No detail is spared. For example, Zubrin writes that Mars settlers will probably wear clothing made of synthetic fabrics and clean them by setting them outside in Mars' ultra-low-pressure atmosphere. The clothes will be fresh, but any stains will remain, which suggests that Camouflage designs will be in fashion on Mars. And as for sports, baseball and football would probably require too much space, while basketball and volleyball would be more suited for Martian settlements. Zubrin even suggests that an aerial sport like the Quidditch matches described in the Harry Potter novels might just be workable in Mars' low-gravity environment. When Dominica Fetaplace and I chatted with Zubrin about the book over Zoom, we started out by asking him how his thinking about Mars settlements has changed since The Case for Mars came out in 1996. One thing that shifted was, uh, even though I, I did discuss the colonization of Mars in The Case for Mars uh, somewhat, and I also looked a little bit into the option of uh, private funding and private enterprise, uh, the center of my thinking at the time I wrote Case for Mars was NASA, the JFK option, and 
two-thirds of the case for Mars is how do we get the first human mission to Mars in our time? That's what the book is about. And then there's some more forward-looking chapters after that. And one chapter on why this is important for humans historically. Uh, this book has the relatively brief, I mean, I think there's something like 14 chapters in the book and three of them, or, or two really, deal with how we can get to Mars soon. And its focus is much more on uh, the private option, even in terms of that. And the the large majority of the book is focused on the settlement of Mars. And in other words, basically, this book essentially says, uh, look, it's soon going to be possible for humans to go to Mars. So the key question is not how do we do that, but what do we do when we get there? What can we create on Mars? That That is, in fact, the subtitle of the book, The New World on Mars, What We Can Create on the Red Planet. And that's what this book is about. And it's about what we can create once we're on Mars and very substantially why this is important for the future history of humankind. You've laid out the case that innovation and inventions would be the primary export and the source of foreign exchange, so to speak, for Mars. I'd love to hear more about that. I, I already suspect that some people will say that the work of invention could just as easily be done on Earth to solve the problems that Earth has. So why go to all the trouble of creating a new world on Mars rather than, say, building underwater habitats or cloud cities? Okay. Well, look, you know, Columbus sold his mission to the Spanish monarch saying, I'm going to find you a route to India, uh, which he didn't. He did find some places the Spaniards were able to loot for some gold. But the real significance of the opening of the Americas to Europeans was the creation of new branches of Western civilization, one of which, namely the United States, has been enormously productive. And yet it does has done some material exports. It exported cotton and later on it exported automobiles and and some other stuff. But really the main thing that it has exported is inventions. Okay. America as a, a free society of relatively speaking, technologically adept people in a frontier environment that forced them to innovate, initiated a, a tour de force of invention, starting with steamboats and telegraphs and going on through uh, electric light bulbs and centrally generated electrical power, recorded sound, motion pictures, airplanes, and and and, and it goes on to nuclear power and iPhones. And, and so we're talking about creating a new and a potentially extremely inventive branch of human civilization which will benefit humanity as a whole enormously, but moreover, will play from that strength to make money. Because yes, America attracted a lot of craftsmen and people like this. Actually, it was a study done of who immigrated to American colonial times and biased very strongly towards artisans and carpenters and people of this kind, uh, as opposed to either city people or farmers. But Mars is even going to be much more technologically selective uh, in terms of who goes there, and also a much more challenging environment. And it, it's going to be, uh, you know, America to the third power in terms of what it will be able to invent. You mentioned that the first arrivals from Europe to the Americas were looking for loot, for gold. Uh, is there an analog for Mars? What would be the enticement uh, or the bait for bringing the, all that innovation to Mars? Well, the current bait for Mars that is uh, causing NASA, of course, is the science. 
uh, to discover whether there was ever life on Mars, whether there is life on Mars, whether it uses the same genetic information system as Earth life does. And by the way, that could potentially be a goldmine for biotech. New forms of genetic machinery uh, could be enormous. But once again, the 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 real benefit is not going to be certain things that it ships back to Earth. Okay, deuterium is five times as common on Mars as it is on Earth, for example, and Martians might ship it back. But it's it's the creative power of new civilizations. Now, Mars, in addition to invention, will have another major source of income, which is supporting the mining of the asteroid belt. It's about a hundred times easier to send supplies to the asteroid belt from Mars than from Earth. And you know, if you want to make money off a gold rush, the way to do it is not by mining gold; it's by selling blue jeans to gold miners. Okay, that's why San Francisco uh, is still there long after the 49ers have departed. And so that'll be a business that will certainly help Mars. But in the end of the day, the the real significance of Mars uh, will be its inventions. Uh, very much technological inventions, but also social inventions, because I think we're going to see a lot of Mars colonies, and they're going to be set up with people with very diverse ideas on what the ideal form of society uh, should be, and perhaps one or more of them will get it right. You mentioned that this new book has a bigger discussion of the role uh, private industry will play in space, and we're also just a few days coming after the successful moon landing of Odysseus, which was a partnership between SpaceX, Intuitive Machines, and NASA. So, of course, that gets me thinking about when will be the first private Mars landing. Uh, Elon Musk said late last year that SpaceX would have a starship ready to land on Mars in three to four years. Is that a realistic timeline? Well, I think SpaceX uh, will develop a starship that's capable of landing on Mars. And whether that happens in 2025 or 2027 is unclear. Musk tends to be optimistic in his schedule projections, but he does eventually tend to deliver. You know, that's basically been the story of SpaceX. It takes longer than he uh, generally projects, but he does get there. And, uh, and the Starship is designed to be able to land on Mars. It's designed to be able to be refueled on Mars out of propellant that you can readily make on Mars, methane oxygen, the very same uh, system that I proposed in the case for Mars. But there's more to it than that. The Starships, okay, we'll probably see Starship reaching orbit this year. Okay, they'll do another test, I think even uh, within weeks, uh, and maybe that'll fail, but it'll get further through the launch envelope than the last two. And then they'll try again, maybe April, and if not in April, in June, they'll succeed. So it's going to happen. So we're about to see fully reusable space launch systems, and not only that, fully reusable heavy lift space launch systems, 100 tons to orbit, almost Saturn V class, but 3% the cost because they're reusable. Now, here's one thing that people haven't realized about reusable space launch systems. The coming of reusable space launch systems will be followed shortly thereafter by a market in used space launch systems. Think about that. A lot of people can't afford a new car, but you can get a used car for one-tenth of the cost or even less. So there's going to be a market in used launch vehicles, uh, both SpaceX and, you know, if Starship succeeds, and it will succeed sooner or later, there's going to be Chinese knockoffs of Starship um, other competitors, copycats, if you will. Uh, this, is, this stuff's going to be around. 
And, you know, Musk told me that he could manufacture a starship, that is the upper stage, the part that would actually go to Mars for $10 million, which means that either he or one of his competitors will sooner or later be willing to sell one for 20. And if they go new for 20, at a certain point, they're going to go used for two. And $2 million divided by 100 people, because they could deliver 100 people to Mars, is $20,000 a person. So 100 people get together, for 20000 bucks each, they can buy themselves a starship and go to Mars and use it for starter housing on Mars. Or the ones they build housing, make tunnels and domes and all of that, use it for either transportation around Mars or out to the asteroid belt to do asteroid mining. So these are the sorts of possibilities that this is opening up. A market in used launch vehicles, which means space launch is going to get a lot cheaper than anything we're seeing now. Yeah, space is hard, though. I mean, we've we've seen that a lot. And you mentioned that Elon is not always that great about uh, coming up with accurate predictions for timelines. People talk about EST, Elon Standard Time. Also, uh, I remember uh, when Dan Golden was the NASA administrator, I think in 2001, he said that uh, humans would walk on Mars in 20 years' time. And, and so it seems as if the only thing you can predict is that predictions are going to be wrong, especially when it comes to spaceflight. You're one of the most optimistic persons on the planet when it comes to uh, being able to foresee a new world on Mars. And and how do you keep that up? How, how do you keep your optimism up after all these years? Well, I don't know. Uh, I believe that uh, th th there's nothing more powerful than the creative power of life. You know, the grass finds a way to break through the pavement. Life finds a way. Okay. Life finds a way. And freedom is going to find a way. And Yes, look, we could have been on Mars in the 1980s had the Nixon administration gone with NASA's plan to follow Apollo up with uh, uh, humans to Mars. But the Nixon administration sabotaged that. It was a, a massive failure of political leadership. And in the decades since then, our political uh, uh, class has become increasingly dysfunctional. The people that got us to the moon were the same people or the younger brothers of the people that won World War II. They knew how to do great projects. They knew how to win wars, create democracies, build the interstate highway systems, atoms for peace, and go to the moon. The people that have followed them have been increasingly small, okay? Uh, and, and look at the dysfunction we have right now, where you have the defense of the Western world being undermined for political purposes um, by uh, the Trump and his immediate followers. But look, the fact that the political class has become dysfunctional has actually created an opening for a different group of people to step forward, okay, which is the entrepreneurial class. And there's a lot more of them. And here's the thing about entrepreneurial initiatives. You don't need a consensus to believe that they will work. You only need one person to believe that it's going to work, okay? We don't need to get everyone to agree, okay? We probably could not get everyone to agree that uh, SpaceX is a great thing and, and this taxpayer should fund it. Okay, but uh, well, in the case of Musk, he has his own money, and in the case of some of these other uh, space startups like Rocket Lab or Relativity, they've managed to find a group of investors willing to bet on them, and so this thing it opens it up completely. We no longer have to get everyone to agree; we only have to get a few people to agree, and in fact, we can get 
a large number of small groups of people to agree, and so we can have lots of initiatives. So if there's a superior design to the Starship, it's going to be found. If not by SpaceX, it'll be found by one of its competitors. That's the the, the beauty of the free market system. Does it worry you that one person, Elon Musk, is such a driver of this effort to get to Mars and make humanity a multiplanetary species? Uh, Elon has had his issues uh, in recent days and... and uh, I can imagine that there would be a time when he's not able to follow through. Okay. Well, here's the thing. The important thing about Musk is he's shown that it's possible for a well-led entrepreneurial team to do these incredible things, including reusable space launch vehicles and do, do things that previously thought that only the governments of superpowers could do and even do things that they said they couldn't do. And that opens the door to lots of people. Now, look, uh, I happen not to agree at all with Elon Musk on many political issues, uh, most notably uh, Ukraine, but that's not the point, okay? Because, you see, Musk isn't going to govern Mars. Musk or SpaceX might be um, the government of one particular Mars city, but there's going to be dozens of Mars cities. And um, Musk, for example... He has said he believes that direct democracy is the is the ideal form of government. Okay, I actually disagree with that because I think that the the the, the purpose of, of of government is to protect liberty. Okay, and I, I don't want everyone else being able to say Zuberin has to shut up. I want to have a Bill of Rights. That is the, the human rights. Okay, as in our Bill of Rights, for example, is a anti democratic institution. It says that an individual can do all sorts of things regardless of what the majority says. Okay, And I also think that political power needs to be divided. I agree with the founders on this. Power is dangerous. And you don't want to have it all rest with one group, even if that is majority opinion, the will of the people. So I don't agree with him on that. But he's welcome to start his Mars colony. And if indeed it proves that direct democracy by the people making every decision is the best possible system, if it leads to the best way of life, then the majority of immigrants will go to his colony and it will outgrow the rest and it'll be an example for all of humankind. If other people have another idea as to what the, and there will be plenty of other people with other ideas, ranging from social democratic to libertarian and all sorts of things that aren't even on that political spectrum, somebody, whoever has the best idea, they will attract the most immigrants they, in other words, whoever can create a society that offers people the best way of life, and which I believe includes the most individual freedom and, and many other things, that will draw the immigrants. That will be an example, not only to the other Mars colonies, but to Earth. There's going to be a lot of noble experiments on Mars. And so it's not a question of me arguing with Elon of uh, limited government versus direct democracy. It's these ideas are going to be put to the test. We've previously had as a guest on the show the author Zach Wienersmith, who co-wrote the book A City on Mars with his wife Kelly. In that book, they argue that A City on Mars is a lot further away than most people think. And furthermore, it would be a bad idea to go soon. They argue that a better approach to a Martian city would be to wait and then go big have you had a chance to read their book? And do you have yes, any thoughts on I, that I, I read the book. And in fact, I wrote a review of that book in Colette, which I hope you will post a link to in this interview, because I soundly refute it. 
uh, the Wiener Smiths say a lot of self-contradictory things. They say there's no point going into space. There's nothing to be gained from it. And therefore, there should be laws to stop it, which makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, They support the Moon Treaty, which would essentially ban extraterrestrial settlement of any kind. Okay, If they think that there's no benefits to be obtained by settling space, why do they require a, a laws to prevent people from doing it? Okay, Look, freedom is not the problem. Freedom is the solution. Okay, And the, 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 they say many other things. They repeat nonsensical ideas from a fellow named David Dudney that if we go into space, the, the major powers will make asteroids into weapons to hurl at the Earth. Okay, that's crazy. Uh, you know, I ran an aerospace R&D company for 27 years. I had plenty of contacts with the military. What does the military want in a weapon system? They want something that is ready, that can be used now. Okay, not we decide to use it and it can only strike five years or 10 or 20 years from now. They want something that is, is stealthy. <laughs> an asteroid attack is anything but stealthy. They, they want things that are secure. Okay, you send an asteroid heading towards the Earth, the slightest change in its trajectory would make it hit your country instead of the enemy. Okay, that they they don't want weapons that can be turned on them. Okay, that so it, it's an absurd weapon system. It's a science fiction scenario designed to make people fear human expansion into space. Now, there is a potential for weaponization of space, and we're seeing it right now in the Ukraine war. This is the first space war because the Ukraines are holding off Russia because of taking advantage of space-based communications, reconnaissance, and GPS-guided munitions. And that's why, even though they're outnumbered four to one, they've been able to fight this thing even. Okay. And that is a good thing. It, it Historically, whenever a more challenging domain is open to military activity, it always benefits the more liberal power. Okay, that's why sea power from Athens through the British Navy was always dominated by the more liberal states. Uh, and in the 20th century, air power, while it was the Axis powers that first tried to put air power to use, by the end of World War II, it was very clear the Anglo-Americans were the ones who were masters of the sky because they're more innovative. And space, similarly, Elon, uh, well, as I said, I do not agree with his positions whatsoever on the Ukraine war. Nevertheless, his technology is enabling Ukraine, and his technology is giving an advantage to the free world against China and Russia. Tyrannies are willing to fight their wars with mass waves of cannon fodder. Liberal societies value uh, the lives of their troops, and they would much prefer to fight their wars with technology. And so opening up a more challenging technical domain, I mean, Wars are not caused by opening these domains. Okay, World War II was not caused by the advent of fighter and bomber aircraft. Okay, but if the war is to be fought, I'd much rather have it be dominated by technological virtuosity than the ability of a power to use its people as cannon fodder. And finally, the other thing is this: what is the cause of war? Okay, well. Somebody wants the war. Who wants war? Tyrants want the war because the fundamental justification for tyranny is the conceit that war is necessary 
And therefore, we have to have a strong government that can suppress dissent and keep everybody united for the purpose of war. I mean, that's, Russia is a war machine. That's what it is. It's not a country with a war machine. It is a war machine. Okay. And Putin needs war in order to justify his tyranny. And But where does the conceit that war is necessary comes from? It comes from the conceit that we're living in a zero-sum world. And anything that benefits them harms us. Okay. Now, by expanding humanity to space, we undermine the conceit of the zero-sum world. And unless we undermine that conceit, we're living on borrowed time. Because yes, if Biden gets his act together uh, and sends the right arms to Ukraine, or if Nikki Haley can upset Trump and sends the right arms to Ukraine, the Ukraine can repel this invasion. But so long as there's tyrants out there that want war, we're living on borrowed time. And the way to undermine them is to undermine the zero-sum ideology. And that's what human expansion to space will do. Right. Human expansion to space is our best chance for peace. And if it comes to war, it's our best chance to win. Right. I agree with much of your critique and, and particularly the idea that Mars serves as a frontier, as a place where People can start fresh, just as we've seen with other frontiers. But there are a couple of sticking points that that were mentioned in that book that I'm I've been thinking about. One is that there's a lack of data about human development and reproduction in reduced gravity, and, and we don't really know what the prospects for settlement are going to be un, until we know more about that issue. And then the other issue is uh, property rights on celestial bodies. That's even though you mentioned the Moon Treaty and the U.S. is not a party to the Moon Treaty, but the international situation relating to property rights in space is far from clear. And it seems to me that's got to get cleared up before we can do a lot of the things that you describe in your book. Okay. So, yeah, we don't know about the long-term effects of, of one-third gravity on people, but we'll find that out when we send our first exploration missions to Mars. Uh, I believe that it'll be okay. I've spoken to astronauts who've experienced zero gravity and lunar gravity, both like Buzz Aldrin, for example. And he told me lunar gravity, it felt like earth gravity more than zero gravity because there's an up, there's a down, the fluids in your body go to the right places. And so all those zero gravity symptoms go away. The Martians will need to exercise more and so forth, but that's doable. Now, in terms of the property rights, the, the Wienersmith has this issue exactly wrong. Okay, because he says that the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which the United States did sign, precludes uh, human settlement on Mars. Quite the contrary. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967, signed by the United States, the Soviet Union, and all other spacefaring countries, precludes them from making a claim of national sovereignty on the moon or Mars, which means that if a Martian colony is set up and declares property rights within its vicinity, they have no jurisdiction to contradict it. They have explicitly signed away their rights to interfere with Mars settlement. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope that the lawyers are able to sort this out rather than the generals. <laughs> um, back in September, we talked about the idea of starting up a Mars Technology Institute to start addressing some of the technological challenges related to offer settlement. 
ranging from power generation to food production and genetics. And at the time, you thought that maybe the Pacific Northwest or Colorado might be the top candidates for the site of the Institute. And I noticed that you discussed the idea again in your book. Has there been any further progress towards setting up such an institute? Yes, there has. And uh, by the way, this goes um, to uh, one of the questions raised earlier. Why not start an inventor's colony on Earth to do this? Well, the answer is we're doing that. Uh, but a Mars colony be far more driven. Uh, the Mars colonists, well, you know, you can't just quit and go to work for Google or HBO or something. Okay, you, you, you're there and you need to solve the problem. But given that we are not in position today to start a Mars inventors colony on Mars, we're starting one on Earth. Now, we just did a fundraising drive, raised $150,000 to get this thing started. And we are in the process of drawing up business plans for two major initiatives, one in the artificial intelligence area and the other in the synthetic food production area. And the idea is fairly soon, we're going to be presenting these uh, business plans to investors and with the idea of starting companies devoted to these two different technological ideas that we have uh, put together. And then it's a question of negotiation, but the Mars Technology Institute will get some equity, the investors will get some equity, and then these companies will take off with a life on their own to develop these technologies, both of which have massive utility for benefiting people on Earth and therefore commercial potential. And then those companies we believe will make a great deal of money. And that money, uh, while the Mars Technology Institute's share of that money will be used to then greatly expand the work of the MTI, including the establishment of the uh, Institute with facilities. And yes, we still are thinking about both the Pacific Northwest as a leading candidate and secondarily Colorado. I'm fascinated by the idea of uh, you're getting those startups ready to go. Are they going to be startups that address general issues in in AI and food production and, oh, by the way, we can use this on Mars? Or is there something about the plans that you're going to be making that have specifically to do with Mars with maybe an Earth spinoff? Well, it, it's both. They're both addressing critical questions for Mars that have tremendous terrestrial spin-off potential. And that is the criteria that we're using in terms of these. Now, we're not talking about just any old AI company. We do have something specific in mind, but unfortunately, I can't discuss exactly what it is right here, right now. But no, it's to commercialize this particular concept, which we think is a, a, a billion-dollar idea. And um, and similarly with the synthetic food uh, concept as well. In other words, we've got two. We're, so we're going to create these two spin-off companies, okay, which once they get started will have a life of their own. Uh, but we think they have the potential to be extremely successful uh, and profitable while creating technologies of critical need for Mars settlement. And then the Mars Technology Institute, since it'll have some equity, will get dividends. It will get, uh, if the stock is public, it'll have a large amount of tradable stock that it could use to fund other things with. So that's how we're going to get this thing going. The thing is, it's on its way. Now, finally, I I do want to say one other thing regarding the Pacific Northwest. I I can't announce it right now, but it looks like uh, the next Mars Society convention will be in Seattle in August. 
And as you know, that is a terrific time to be in the Pacific. I do. I do. I'll be there. Yeah. I, I think my <laughs> schedule is clear. Okay. So is mine. I went to the University of Washington and I love that part of the world and I'm delighted to be heading back then. On the fiction science podcast, we love science fiction. Uh, there have been many fictional predictions of the Mars settlement in recent years. For example, The Expanse, For All Mankind, uh, the National Geographic Mars TV series, which you contributed to. Um, Ken Stanley Robinson was a pioneer with his Mars trilogy. And even I made an attempt. I wrote a recent novella for Asimov's magazine set on a Mars colony. Is there any fictional depiction of a Mars colony that comes closest to what you have in mind? Well, the the main thing where I differ from these things is not that I think that any of them are necessarily impossible, is that I don't believe that any one model is going to be the model for all Mars colonies. I don't think there will be a single government of Mars. Uh, so the idea on, in the expanse, for instance, you have Mars as a single government and it's organized uh, kind of as a Sparta. Now, I think you might have one Mars colony organized that way. I don't think its prospects would be that promising because I don't see a lot of immigrants wanting to go there. Similarly, some of these other things, you have a Mars base established by essentially NASA or by a, a group of space agencies, which is sort of what you have, I think, in the National Geographic and in um, the Robinson book. Now, I think that is possible for an initial Mars base. I think it's actually probable. A scientific base established by a group of space agencies is, is a very realistic uh, idea. But as we move towards colonization, you start getting uh, Mars colonies started by uh, uh, individual groups of people, people who may be considered a little wacky by most other people here on Earth, just as the pilgrims were thought that way. Uh, just as uh, the Mormons were thought about that way, just as the, uh, um, the the Jewish Zionists of Europe were thought, this is a little crazy going to Israel. I mean, come on. I mean, well, it wasn't called Israel. They're going to where Israel had been is sort of, these are dreamers, but yet those dreamers did create Plymouth Colony and they did create Utah and they did create Israel. So I think we'll start getting colonies established by people like that. We'd also love to hear some of your recommendations. Are you watching or reading or listening to anything that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, I intend to read your book, Dominica, uh, and uh, it goes through Mars. Okay, and uh, and uh, then we'll see. It sounds very interesting. In terms of past literature on Mars, well, of course, I have a novel called First Landing, but you're asking me about other people's. With Robinson's book, I liked the first one, uh, Red Mars. I didn't really like Green Mars and Blue Mars that much. They just got too weird for me. But the discussion in Red Mars of the merit of terraforming Mars is very interesting. And so I, I like that. And I, I think Red Mars is a classic. And uh, otherwise, Greg Benford and uh, Jeff Landis both have good Mars novels. The, the movie The Martian, I had a problem with. I enjoyed it a great deal. As a movie, it was fine. But it's not the great Mars movie. That is yet to be made. And the problem with The Martian is that the Matt Damon character isn't interested in Mars. 
He's just interested in getting home. So it's a good movie about the can-do spirit. It's well done dramatically. It's a lot of fun to watch, but I'd give it a B plus. It's frequency. It's not Casablanca. It's not a movie that 50 years from now, people are going to say, this is the favorite movie I ever saw. It doesn't get right to the heart of the matter. So the great Mars movie has yet to be made. It is superior to all other Mars movies in that it attempted to be realistic. Uh, although, I mean, there's various technical nits I have with it, but but it's not like most of the other Mars movies are just either shoot em ups or horror pictures. This is a, a movie that attempts to use the human mission to Mars as its um, theme, but it's sort of like, it's like Apollo 13, which wasn't about the moon. It was about the spirit and resourcefulness of the astronauts, okay? So this movie was about the spirit and resourcefulness of future astronauts, and, and that's a good thing because the can-do spirit is necessary if we're going to take on Mars. But it doesn't really get at the, the great drama of the opening of Mars. It's not how the West was won. <laughs> Well, I'm going to look forward to the first nonfiction book about astronauts and regular people going to Mars. I know we talked about how problematic it is to try to predict what the timeline is going to be, but uh, are you willing to go out on a limb and talk about when the first humans will set foot on Mars and when the first settlement will be created? Well, I'd put some error bars on it. Okay. If Musk gets back on track because he's been substantially diverted by Twitter and some other things. And that definitely holds both the potential of slowing his show down or even derailing it entirely. But if he, he gets back to focusing his full uh, capability on SpaceX and getting humans to Mars, and SpaceX has a fair amount of luck, I think we could have humans on Mars uh, by 2032. That is... You know, if Starship reaches orbit this year, and then, well, Mickey Haley is elected president, and uh, th this is the reality of the world. We've got a new president with lots of vigor and a potential eight-year term in front of her. And she turns to her advice and says, here's this cat wants to go to Mars. He's got the ship. If we got together with him, could we have people on Mars by end of my second term? The answer is going to be yes. Will it break the bank? No, because we already got the ship. We got most of what we need. We can get this done. Okay. That's the optimistic scenario. That's what I'm praying for. Okay. On the other hand, if SpaceX should fail, either because of a technical accident or because Musk abates the securities and exchange authorities too much or, you know, otherwise skates off the edge of the ice, then there's going to be substantial delay. Because while there are people following on his footsteps, if, for instance, there's about five companies in China right now working on knockoffs of the Falcon 9. And if Starship is successful, there's going to be Chinese companies working on knockoffs of that, as well as companies in the West with variations on it. But they're 10 years behind. Okay. So in that case, we're looking at humans on Mars by the end of the 2030s, not the beginning. Now, once we have humans on Mars with ships of this general type, that is ships that can make uh, Mars exploration, I hate to use the word, but sustainable that is uh, not just one mission or three missions, you know, like the Artemis program, they're talking about doing a mission to the moon every other year. Or no, no, we're talking about being able to have a, a, a sustained and muscular Mars 
uh, program of exploration, building base on Mars, et cetera, then I think within 20 years of that, we'll have the first human settlement on Mars. We'll have children born on Mars, schools on Mars, the beginning of new communities on Mars. Well, I'm going to put the Mars Society meeting on my calendar for August. And uh, could I ask you to put fiction science on your calendar for 2032? And let's revisit this issue at least at that time, if not before. All right. We can revisit it at the convention this August. Okay. Okay, because I think by that time, Starship will have reached orbit. All right. All and right. It's going to change the shape of the discussion. Very good. Thank you so much for being with us and best of luck with the book. I wish you every success. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks to Robert Zubrin and to Tammy Blake at Diversion Books for setting up the interview. Check out my blog item at cosmiclog.com to learn much more about the new world on Mars. You'll find links to First Landing, Robert's novel about a fictional Mars expedition, and to Ghosts of Mars, Dominica's novella. We're also linking to our podcast interview with Zach Wienersmith and to Robert's review of the book that Zach and his wife Kelly wrote. While you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from Cosmic Log. Thanks to James Emley for performing the Fiction Science theme music composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.